Shields, and you're listening to The Cozy Sleuth. Today, Snoops and Sleuths, I'm interviewing Carmen Radke. Did I get that right, Carmen? Yes, perfect. Yay! And she'll be talking to us about her books and all things cozy. Carmen, would you like to tell my Snoops and Sleuths about your books? I'd love to. Well, first of all, I have been reading mysteries my whole life. My earliest, oh, some of my earliest memories were um, sharing my father's pulp fiction. Really cheap, but back then, you know, they were everywhere. I didn't understand everything. I didn't understand any of that subtext. But I knew all about crime and about getting caught before I even, you know, went to secondary school. So that was a very, very good introduction to crime. And then, of course, Agatha Christie, Nancy Drew, all the, you know, usual suspects. So I've always loved a good mystery. And I was living in New Zealand when I just, as a reporter, did some, you know, basic online research, just typing in a few words and seeing what would pop up. And I stumbled upon one paragraph that um, said that in 1862, there was a boatload of brides being shipped out from Australia because Australia was at that time in a recession, or at least um, Victoria was. And they were being sent over to Canada to be married off to wealthy prospectors because Canada had, the, they had the gold rush. They were a very young province. They just started out as a proper country. And of course, they were lacking women. Only these women never arrived. They all disappeared during a stopover in San Francisco. And I thought, no, that is terrible. And how is it possible that I never heard about that? And then I found another article written about 100 years later that said, these women had been, you know, undesirables anyway. So they probably just jumped ship because of course they wouldn't be. They could not bear the, just the thought of having to marry a man with money and leaving a, leading a respectable life. So I thought that, that is, you know, how can you talk badly about people you've never met, you don't know what happened, and you can still slander them? <laughs> so I started doing a little bit of research, stumbled upon a book with uh, letters from the period that gave me all the insights about Australia at that time and about, well, the mindset of that time, especially towards poor women without family, without connections that nobody would care about. And I wrote The Case of the Missing Bride, which then became a um, finalist in the Malice Domestic competition in a year without a winner. It, it was published first by a small publishing company in um, England, where I live at the moment. It was nominated for a CW Historical Dagger together with um, one of my heroes, Joan Hess and Barbara Peters. Didn't get any further than that, but still, I was incredibly proud. And um, yeah, I just took it from there because during that research, I stumbled upon the fact that Australia was really, really badly hit by the Great Depression, which I did not know. Because, you know, nobody knows anything about Australia in that time, uh, time period, unless you live in Australia. 
and they had you know, really, really interesting rules and restrictions, what women could do and what women could not do, despite the fact that they were among the first countries to give women the vote. So I wrote a mystery about that with a charming nightclub owner who has his very own code of honor because alcohol was prohibited after 6 p.m. Up until 5.59, you could serve liquor by the wagon load. At 6, you broke the law. Hmm. So That's interesting. I know. I know. So, you know, he breaks the law, except for a very good reason, because, of course, he's got people to look after and people to care for. And anyway, people would always be drinking. Well, yeah. But a very, very good character, you know, to have his own, well, his own moral code and to know exactly which line you could cross and which line you couldn't cross. And I just love these characters. And, you know, it's, it's a bit bohemian. It is very f- uh, family orientated. You know, you look after your friends, you look after your family, you look after your own, and you help each other. And I think that's also something that is really interesting about that time period because, of course, people were poor. People are poor nowadays. But then they were all poor together. And there was no shame in that. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And it's also, of course, it's just a very interesting period because you've got all the liberty and the excitement of the jazz age. And women had never been that free before. But also you've got already the Great Depression, so things are starting to become really, really tough. And yeah, I like that in a way that it's really cozy and you can get by without, you know, all gratuitous sex and violence, which is not my kind of style. And I'm not really that keen on reading about it either, unless it's very well done. But you've got all the subtext, all these things going on underneath. And, you know, you've got... You've got social issues and you can pack them all into a cozy mystery and you're really entertaining. And if people want to think about it, they can. And if they would just want to be along for the ride and have fun trying to follow the clues and just get involved in a new world, that's also fun. Yeah, isn't that the great thing about cozy mysteries is that you can do that. I actually tried to do that with one of my books, which is set in like the 1920s. And, yeah, it's just such a fun thing to do with cozies. Exactly. You can, you can do everything with them. And I think just because uh, they have certain rules doesn't mean that they're restrictive. Not at all, because it's actually liberating. And you can get away from the cliches easily. Oh, you really easily? What, yeah. So my Alyssa Chalmers series is set on, um, which follows on from the case of The Missing Brides, is uh, now leads them to Canada. So I have saved them. And in my books, I can give them the lives that they should have had and learn all kinds of interesting things along the way. I, there were so many things about Canada and about the gold that I had no idea about. But I also know about how do you assay gold? It's fun. <laughs> and it's, and pack trains. I had never even heard about pack trains. I mean, I knew about, you know, going out into the gold fields or going out into the bush and fossicking and whatever. But it's just fun and it's different and it's a completely different world and you can escape. You can escape to either a small town if you feel like it. You can escape to another time if you feel like it. You can have an old 
or an elderly protagonist, you can have a young heroine, you can have all these generations mixed together, all different kinds of characters, and they just are the most beautiful and amazing fun. I might not have written my Jack and Francis mysteries if I hadn't fallen in love with Reese Bowen's uh, Molly Murphy and her Royal Spine series, or with Elizabeth Peters' Amelia Peabody series, which is still one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I wouldn't have written my book Sparks of Suspicion, which is, it falls right into the, you can do amazing things with your characters. My main character in that one is an elf that runs a llama alpaca ranch. Wow. <laughs> and she has to figure out who killed a gnome. But, of course. <laughs> but uh, what after reading... Um, the Cat Who books, I fell in love with the small town feel of Cozy Mysteries. And that inspired me to make my own quirky town, Lasola, where my main character lives. And it's this town full of quirky mythics in this case, because I'm also a huge mythology nerd. <laughs> that is always fun. Yeah. I, in Lettering Death, I uh, created a whole prospector's town. So basically just really starting from scratch, one without women and what happens when the women move in and the women slowly start to take over. And of course, some of the men, you know, just run away, really scared by the very idea of having women around <laughs> and others just thrive. And Adelaide uh, for Jack and Francis, it's a city, but it still has a very, very small, small town feeling. And, you know, even big cities, they are basically made up of dozens of different uh, small villages, each with its own character. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The different feels and, like you said, a big city is, in a lot of ways, if you look at any big city, they're little villages within a huge gathering of people. Exactly. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, either you, uh, you can get to know your neighbors very, very well, even in the city. And you go a few blocks further and nobody will know you. On the other hand, you know, in a small village, people might think they know everything about you, but they don't. They just know the expectations of you. So true. I mean, I grew up in very yeah. good fodder for a cozy mystery. Yeah, and I grew up, uh, well, basically in a neighborhood where neighborhood watch meant exactly that. When I gave notice on my first rented apartment, uh, the owner told me exactly how often I had cleaned the windows. They had kept track. And it's like, you know, living under a magnifying glass. Sounds like I, it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew everything about everyone in that area. I knew who uh, was a gambler. I knew who was in debt. I knew who was supposed to cheat on his wife. I knew who wore a wig. I'd never met these people, but I knew all the details about them because my landlady was constantly waiting to catch me and just to tell me. So I just <laughs> had to get away. <laughs> but it's... it's it is perfect for a mystery writer. You know, well, it's perfect for any writer because it's just, you can't make this stuff up. 
Sounds like it. I mean, sounds very rear window. <laughs> oh, yes. Only, yeah, only without, you know, the the apartment in James says you are so easygoing charm. Anyways, kind of old couture fashion. Yeah. <laughs> More like elasticated waistbands. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, people often think of cozy mysteries as really just, you know, being the amateur sleuth and um, the Jessica Fletcher type, Miss Martha type, which is true, but there's so much more. And even if you look underneath, you know, even with Agatha Christie, there was, there's always a lot of deep meaning hidden. And even if it's just, you know, about class conventions, about prejudice, about second chances, about, well, uh, feminist issues, you can find things if you look for them. But you don't have to. True. And they're just, you know, the most escapist fiction I can imagine. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to anyone seeking to write their own cozy mysteries? Uh, first of all, just write what really fascinates you because you're going to spend so much time with your characters. And also it doesn't really matter if you change your plot along the way, you can always fix it later. First, get to know your characters. You need to love your characters, even the bad ones, and then you can write about them. And then you can you know, come up with all clever plots and um, things and red herrings, but you need to love your characters first. And you need to know them. You need to, well, you probably don't need to, uh, to know what they would eat, what, what's their worst childhood memory, but you should always know what they, what secret they would hide from anyone. You know, we, we all have, you know, like shabby little secrets. Like, you know, uh, stealing chocolate from your child. <laughs> that we wouldn't want anyone to know. It doesn't have to be bad, but it's, it tells you a lot about your character and about what they would do to hide these secrets. Yeah. And also, don't, don't bother about length. Because I've seen a lot of posts, you know, about, you know, uh, I, write, um, I write a book a month, which I couldn't do. I'm not that fast. Uh, and they're always, you know, about seventy to 80,000. And a book is as long as it needs to be. And especially do not let yourself be stopped because what you put on the page does not resemble the things you had in your mind. The best advice I was ever given was first get it written, then get it right. Because I was, you know, sitting there really looking at a paragraph and there was something off with it and I just couldn't figure out what. And I just sat there and didn't write. And then I said, okay, first get it written, then get it right. So you can go on and then you fix things in the second draft or in the third draft and then you talk to people. The best thing is also to find like-minded people who will give you feedback, not your family, because either they say something really, really wrong, or even if they are the most astute people ever, you will never trust them when they say, oh, this is fabulous, because of course they say that. They love you. They're your family. So find people whose judgment you trust, but also people who would be honest to say, you know, um, I really like this and this, but I do not understand why your heroine would 
be with a man who treats her badly all the time. We never see him being charming. We never understand the attraction. And then you say, all right, uh, or something like, uh, this doesn't quite add up with your timeline, or I do not understand how this heist would have worked. That comes later. But you need people to tell you that, because otherwise you just twist yourself into knots and, and all you want to do is get your beautiful story out onto the page. That is some great advice. And I completely agree with the fine like-minded people that'll give you good advice. I'm a member of several different groups and there's times I'm posting sections of my books, one of which I'm a member of a speculative fiction group. So I run my, like, cause my character's a elf. So I run the magic by them where it's like, does this make sense? Or did it just seem to come out of left field? Yeah. One of my favorite writers ever, and I constantly reread some of his books is Terry Pratchett. He is absolutely brilliant. He's got everything covered. He's got the uh, mythology. He's got the folklore. He's got satire. He's got, well, he's got Shakespeare retellings. He's got mythology retellings. And he's always, always plausible. Everything makes sense in the context of his world. And that's another thing. You can invent any world that you want, but the rules need to make sense. Absolutely. And of course, I love, well, I used to be um, a journalist for a long, long time. So I absolutely love my research books. I've (laughs) got, well, a book of baby names, which gives you the background and also the times when they were popular and also the areas when they were popular because of course in the uh, south of the US you've got different names than you would in Australasia, than you would in the UK, than you would in Scandinavia and that gives you a lot of background and that also tells you a lot about the character already and I I love my dictionary of slang. I've got a slang dictionary which tells you which countries some words originated in when they were first used. So you can make absolutely sure that an Australian sounds like an Australian, that a Canadian sounds like a Canadian, that a Scotsman does not sound like he's Irish. And it's just fun. It's just really fun to see how words, words have changed. And of course, I, I would love, I would love to, you know, come up with a really cool idea about an elf as a sleuth but you've already got it covered so that's brilliant so i can read about it which is at least as much fun and a lot less work yeah with elf actually it was a ton of work for my main character's name is sabia i had to research because she's not just any elf which sounds weird to say but I got really specific and I looked into Native American folklore to see if they had a version of an elf, which several tribes do, little mm-hmm. known fact, including I'm part of the Choctaw tribe, which originated in Mississippi, uh, Alabama, Florida area. And they have what? two, one called the Kawaii Anakasha and the other called the Bopoli. 
and I'm probably going to get grief for mispronouncing those, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But one is more sinister than the other, so I had to choose which one I wanted to use for for part of Sabia's lineage. Oh, that's fascinating. I um, have, of course, the Tony Hillerman mysteries, because I was born in Germany, so one of my, well, first proper series was classic uh, German adventure stories, which were set in the, in America. And they were written at that time by a German. He started writing them in prison, where he was for the theft of a watch. He'd never been to America, but of course, he did his, he really did his research. And so I grew up, you know, with a tales of the noble tribes and then some tribes or some Indians uh, corrupted by white people. So that was, that was absolutely brilliant. And I read them together with my father again, but also together with, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and television, of course, Bonanza was on a rerun made sure that I wanted to emigrate before I was six years old. I only got as far as the bus stop during my first attempt (laughs) because I knew that I definitely would not be able to walk. And my parents intercepted me, but yeah, I think books shape not just our view of the world because of course later on we get other influences, but they shape very much what we're interested in. And they they let us see other worlds. They let us experience other other cultures and I think we need that to even understand each other and also it's really it's really fascinating I I have never yet written a book set in Germany because I did not feel the urge so far maybe one day I will probably not I've got there are so many ideas there are always so many ideas and so little time I hear that one (laughs) But it's, it's always great when you hear from a reader. I had one uh, man contacted me on Messenger and uh, just leaving one sentence. I dig Alyssa. Alyssa Chalmers is the heroine of the case of the missing writing, glittering death. And that was really cool. Just oh, having male, male readers. I mean, it would have been nicer if he had told the world that they should read the Alyssa Chalmers mysteries. But at least he told me. And it's always great to hear from a reader, isn't it? Absolutely. I had one who reviewed um, the case of the missing bride when it originally came out in 2017. And she just recently read Glittering Death and reviewed it because I had, well, I had been sitting on it for a while or rather my agent while she tried to find a publisher. But uh, for the US publishers, it was too American. For the Canadian uh, it was to Canadian for the Canadian publishers. Either they had something similar or the sense of place was not quite strong enough for them because, of course, I recreated a non-existing town in British Columbia in 1862, so I don't know. But anyway, she read it and she reviewed it and she remembered everything about the first book more than two and a half years later. Wow. And you need that, that kind of readers is what keeps you going. And there's yeah. another thing for, for new writers. 
don't go by the sales figures because that way madness lies. You've got to be very, very lucky or very well connected or very good at promotion to hit it big. But if you love what you're doing and if you find a few readers that actually understand what you try to say and who love your creation and who want to live in that world and who want to spend time with your characters, that is precious. Absolutely. I have met um, uh, relatively successful TV writers and they say that if they, you know, break it down to an hourly wage of the money they make for just writing a TV episode, it, um, it is less than one buck an hour. Wow. And that's true. If you look at it, if you look at the time you spend, if you do it properly, but also the joy you give. Yeah, the joy you give is priceless. Yeah, and I am very, very lucky that um, a large um, audio publisher has picked up my Jack and Francis mysteries to br- and, and uh, they are bringing them to libraries so people can actually get the audio version from the library because otherwise they are prohibitively expensive and you get a little bit of money for every time somebody takes out your audio book and people can listen to it and without going broke. That's awesome. I, I adore libraries. Yeah. So when will those be available for audiobook? Because I love audiobooks. Yeah. I mean, I know you can do it yourself, but there are also publishers out there that you can actually approach. I'll see if you, um, I can find you a link or two. Because, you know, what's the worst that can happen? That they say no and won't buy it. Yeah, that's about the worst that can happen. And then, what, you're on your own. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, we pretty much are on our own. Even if you are with... Yeah, even even when I was with a uh, publisher, they didn't promote me. I mean, which is fair enough because it was Cozy Mystery and they went into a completely different direction. So I couldn't really complain. They gave me a chance. Of course, exact two days after I had signed the contract with them, an American agent uh, said, you know, I would love to sign you for three books if you can, um, you know, come up with ideas for the sequels. And I had to tell her, I'm so sorry, I just signed away the rights. But you never know. Yeah. And we all take chances. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we don't succeed. But as long as... I think we do our best for ourselves, for our stories, and for the reader. Because I would, I would hate to cheat a reader. I mean, I've had reviews that said, this was not really a thriller. I just said, no, you know, because I never said it's a thriller. I said anything but a thriller. Mm-hmm. The, the covers are a giveaway. The titles are a giveaway. The blurbs usually tell you if you're going to be on the edge of your seat and there will be a massacre. Or not. But it's also interesting how uh, very different the expectations are in different countries. I love those mysteries. I could um, find them in huge numbers in New Zealand bookstores. When I went to Canada and to, um, the, uh, to the US on holiday, I would bring back a suitcase full of cozy mysteries. But even authors like Reese Bowen, she took years to, uh, or it took her 18 years to find a British publisher, although 
most of her uh, mysteries are set in the UK. Interesting. And I have had rejections that um, from the UK saying, you know, oh, it should be either US based or UK based, or it's the wrong period because it's Victorian, or we don't really like that. Uh, then in the US, they said, you know, it should be set in the US or the UK. <laughs> <laughs> but mo most of my readers are in the US and they love uh, uh, reading about Australia. The lowest number of readers I have for Glittering Death, which is set in Canada, are Canadians. I don't know, because maybe it's less exotic if it's in your own backyard. I don't know. Yeah, I think people in general have a anywhere but here attitude, I guess you could say, for their books or for their reading choices, because it's like yeah. they want to have their books expand their view, I guess you could but say. Either it's anything but here, or it has to be exactly here, so I you know, get this nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that I know everything. <laughs> yeah, there's that feeling too. <laughs> and I, I know that um, a lot of really popular series are set in the same location. I mean, I love I love the Donna and Meg Langslow is a fabulous, fabulous character. I love those novels. Um, Carolyn Hart, with her Annie Darling series, set on an island in uh, South Carolina. It was it South Carolina or North Carolina? Anyway, one of the Carolinas. It's brilliant. Although sometimes I think a series can also go on for too long. When I'm on book 25 and the plot starts to repeat itself, then it's a bit much but sometimes of course if something sounds the publishers want more of that and then they don't want even to tr even try anything new and that's also a shame yeah but you know there are so so many really really fabulous mysteries and especially cozy mysteries out there or oh, I, I love the uh, classic mysteries of the golden age rex stout archie goodwin a milk drinking sleuth <laughs> fabulous that and that's where you know. That's really re interesting. Yeah, and really, really cleverly done, and exciting. I love, I love Naya March. Maybe I would never have moved to New Zealand without her. I don't know, but she was my first connection with New Zealand. And then my father said, "Oh, why would you want to live in New Zealand? It's just like Switzerland." I, th I thought, "Oh, Switzerland, right? All right." And. You know, there are so many places out there and you, you can discover them and you can discover new hobbies, you can discover new interests, new facts, and you can meet new friends, not just the characters, because of course some characters are so wonderful that basically you would want to live with them. But also among the readers and writers, you find family, people who actually understand you and you know that you're not really crazy when you find out how many uh, people were sentenced to death in a certain prison and um, killed in a certain prison. Yeah, that's always great when you, like, when I've been with my cozy mystery groups on Facebook, I love interacting with the authors there. It just makes you feel like you fit in somewhere, which sounds weird to say, but it's like, yeah, you fit in. Yeah, exactly. And they understand and they they like the same things uh, mostly they like the same books they have read books and they appreciate 
just talking to readers and writers and just interacting because writing is a bit lonely. Well, it's not when you've got all these people in your head, <laughs> but on the surface, it is just you and your keyboard or whatever you write on and the things happening in your head going wrong in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, I can't think of anything better to do with my time apart from reading and watching television which I also do a lot, but I also do a, a tap dance on a Monday. Lately, I have been doing that via Zoom. And of course, you know, all these new things and technologies and there are ideas out there all the time. You can ex meet people all the time without having to leave your home. So that's also good. Yeah. Who is your favorite sleuth ever? Ha do you have one? Because I just can't. I can't, I can narrow it down, but I could never, ever say just one. Oh my gosh, that is, that's hard for me too. Um, I think my heart will always belong to Jim Quillen when it comes to sleuths. I loved, he was like my first yes. ever cozy sleuth. So and a man, I just loved his character. <laughs> he was fabulous. I love those books. Yes. And of course, I loved his cat, Coco. <laughs> yes. Although I also love um, Sneaky, uh, Sneaky Pie uh, Brown and Mrs. Murphy. Oh, yeah. And I Tucker. loved Mrs. Murphy's attitude. Yes. <laughs> and they... not, that, not that the people weren't great in it, but Mrs. Murphy and T. Tucker were, like, for me, made the book. <laughs> they did. Absolutely. And I have, well, I'm, uh, the book that I'm currently working on uh, features a corgi. And I borrowed the name for the dog from a friend in Austin, Texas. So the dog is male, but he is called Tinkerbell or Tink. And then oh. I started to do a little bit of research about um, corgis. And I found out that in folklore, uh, they were said to have been used to write on by fairies. So I the uh, no name idea. Tinkerbell, yeah. So the name Tinkerbell, of course, is perfect. And yeah. I did not know that. It just, you know, made sense. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and hey, I learned something new folklore-wise. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, you can you can have your elves write on corgis. <laughs> If my elves weren't, you know, normal yeah. people size. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, corgis are quite small, so you could even have a whole herd of elves or whatever the plural is for them. How many? It's not what what are you know a town full of elves? What would it be? Anyway, they could they could ride on a corgi. Yeah, <laughs> and so you you always you always learn something new. Yeah. Even if, it, even if you never use it in your writing, or maybe in a few books time, you never know because it's never wasted. Yeah. And I think, especially in times like these, you need escapism and you need the knowledge to know that whatever really bad is happening in the book, it will all be all right in the end. And justice will prevail and there will be peace and happiness. Until and the next book. 
exactly. <laughs> but for a while, you know, for a while, all is good with the world. So true. That's so great. That. It's comfort. It's, it's really comfort, uh, comfort food for the soul. Absolutely. That's the greatest thing to say about cozies. They are comfort food for the soul. Yeah. And they're also very ethical. So I like to really pose that question, you know, uh, because illegal doesn't always mean it's right. And illegal doesn't always mean it's wrong. True. So I don't mind. I do not mind, you know, having my sleuth bending the rules a little bit in the pursuit of justice. I actually like that because <laughs> I think it makes sense. It does make sense. And it, it also makes for a very, it makes for a not cardboard character. Yes. I mean, I, I love some recurring characters that you find a lot, but after a while, it's also refreshing to, to find someone new. A friend of mine is currently working on a series, and I made her start writing novels. She started out in, uh, with a screen, screenplays, and of course, they are a lot shorter, they're a lot more restrictive, and she had one story that... Um, was absolutely great, but it would have been so expensive to make. It would never, probably never have been picked up. So I spent six months convincing her to write the novel. She spent six months telling me that she couldn't possibly write so many words. Not ever, <laughs> ever, ever. Then it took her three weeks to have the first draft finished. <laughs> and it was an audible UK crime grant finalist and they bought the rights. So, yeah. Never say never. <laughs> exactly. And now she's hooked. <laughs> now she's working on a novel number five. <laughs> and of course, because I love all her stuff and want to read more, I'm always encouraging her. <laughs> but she's also one of the people uh, that I trust with my stuff to look and to review and just to tell me and... Um, point me in the right direction or you know if something doesn't make sense because you know everything in your head but that doesn't mean that it translates to the reader and I give her my feedback so it's all good <laughs> and that is how it should be because writing is solitary but it's also very collaborative if you've got people you can trust and always having someone to bounce back ideas with or even if it's just a funny line you say oh my god you, you need to have one of your characters say that <laughs> or you know you need to have that situation or that is perfect for that character or that is perfect for that series it's it's fun and it's useful and it's the way it should be absolutely so not that you have a hard time with this but how can my snoops and sleuths follow you and get in touch with you right i am on uh facebook under my name i've got my website uh, carmenradke.com I am on Twitter at carmenradke1 and of course on Amazon I've got my author page they just need to look up The Case of the Missing Bride I think there's only one book of that title in the whole universe at the moment hopefully and I'm always happy to talk to readers I am a lot on Facebook probably more than I should <laughs> or on Twitter I am on Instagram under uh, the handle scripter 25 because it took me quite a while to you know um to say you know yeah yeah i'm you know i'm writing a bit uh, to say yes i'm a writer 
oh, that is another thing. Never sell yourself short even to yourself. The moment you think, you know, yeah, yeah, just, you know, I'm just, you know, writing a little bit. You set yourself up for, uh, for failure because when you write, you are a writer. You're not Absolutely. an aspiring writer. You're not, you know, someone who, you know, just dabbles a little bit. You are a writer. It doesn't mean you have to be J.K. Rowling. It doesn't mean you have to be Agatha Christie. It doesn't mean to have, you have to be Tolstoy or Dan Brown. You are a writer and you are uniquely you because no one else would ever write the same book. They can have the same idea, but ne nobody else can write the same book than you do. That's Something very unique. Advice. Yeah. You know, when you go to the theater, when you um, go and watch Phantom of the Opera, it's a spectacle, but it is a cookie cutter show because they have the same choreography, which must be repeated everywhere in the world. The costumes are regulated everywhere in the world. So they have taken art and tried to McDonaldize it. Whereas with your writing, Nobody says the same things that you do, and they wouldn't, and they couldn't. That's so true, and that's also the comforting thing about writing is even if you think you're using the same, like with me, elves are everywhere in fantasy, and but they're not, they're hardly anywhere in cozy that I've seen. So, no. There's the comfort that I can take that it, this is, while yes, I'm taking a very used trope over in this area, I'm moving it into a world that it's not so used. And you, you can make your readers discover another world because if they are really interested in those elves and want to know more, they can branch out into other, other books and other genres. And I like how you can combine all this. I have a, um, well, contemporary uh, cozies, but uh, with my agent, so everything takes forever just to, to hear back. But the ones that I have published so far are all historical. So you learn a lot about the history of places and the history of, of the times and specifics of the times while still having the mystery. So I know a lot about the medicinal use of leeches in the 1850s and 1860s. Really useful creatures. I did not know anything about that before, and apart from the fact that I would, would always say, oh, oh my God, leeches, when I read about them. So you always learn something new. And, and even if it's just stumbling upon a name that you think, oh my God, I love that name. I shall name a baby or a cat or a dog after that person and that character and vice versa. It's always something that you can take home and that you can cherish and hopefully share. Yeah. Well, wow, we have gone over our 15 minutes, but I've had so much fun talking with you. I shall definitely look out your books. I would love to stay in touch. Oh, definitely. I'll send you a friend request on Facebook. If I haven't oh. already. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think otherwise we wouldn't have been able to talk on Facebook. I think. I don't know. I don't well, know. I think it's but, just the fact that we were in the same group, but. Yeah, but def let's definitely do that. Thank you very much. This is my very, very first podcast. I haven't done very many interviews because um, 
well, my first public reading during a library event. That was when I picked up the case of the missing bride, the first time since it had been published. And I read three pages and the publisher had somehow managed to put in so many typos that I could have screamed in public. Oh, no. And was, no, and that was, well, that was one of the reasons why I ended my publishing contracts. Apart from the fact that I once found the case of the missing bride under dystopian conspiracies, under erotica, and just, you know. Oh, no. Yep. Although there is, I think there is a kiss somewhere. I think there was a kiss. Just a peck on the cheek, but still, you know. <laughs> yeah, but that shouldn't have warranted going to that genre. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's crazy and it's just really frustrating. And it's so much nicer when you've got a certain amount of control. Absolutely. That's how I feel with, because I self-publish my books and it's like, well, yeah, I go to well, maybe I should try pursuing a publisher, but then the control freak in me is kind of like, no, you want to control this. You want to, yeah. you want to hold on to this. <laughs> exactly. And especially, you, you know what you're doing. And it's only a very, very few publishers who would actually go out of their way to spend a lot of money on promoting you. Yeah. I know some hist uh, well, historical writers and they are now with um, Aria Fiction and they, Aria Fiction actually purchases book, bu uh, book bub ads for them, which is great, but that is rare. And when you do all the hard work and all the you know, promotion anyway, then it's, it is good to have a certain amount of control unless you find somebody who you actually trust. And that's rare too. I know, and even so, it's it's getting really, really crazy. My friend has had rejections uh, for her, um, her rom-com from a UK publisher. The editor wrote one page about how much she loved the book, how she couldn't uh, turn it down, how she was, you know, rooting with a beating heart for the protagonist, but that they would have to pass because a romantic comedy set in Paris was just a bit too outlandish for the audience. Uh, interesting. I Isn't I Paris considered this like yeah, one of the most romantic cities in the world? You know, I thought that even British readers, even with Brexit and everything, would still have heard about a place called Paris. I have had rejection who said, you know, they love the premise, they were absolutely enchanted by the characters, but the book was a little bit too commercial for their taste. Oh. I didn't even that you can be too commercial. So you can't win. You simply cannot win. It's <laughs> yeah, crazy. That's, that, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. Anyway, I should probably let you get on with your life. It was great talking with you. It and was lovely for you to have me. So I was a bit nervous, to be honest. Oh. Who wouldn't be? Oh. Trust me, I've, I've done the interview side, so I, I know how nervous, <laughs> how nerve-wracking that can be. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to, you know, being the interviewer, 
not the interviewee, but <laughs> but it's always good. I once interviewed Ken Follett, and I was quoting Shakespeare and Jane Austen with him. Oh, wow. I know, my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I um, actually smashed the wine glass of a fabulous screenwriter, one of my favorites, so she will remember me. I was <laughs> the one who brought her wine. Yeah. Anyway, I hope I'll see you soon or talk soon. Definitely. Right. Then I shall now go and feed my family, including <laughs> the cat. All right. Okay. Thank you, Liana. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That was a great interview with Carmen Radke on The Cozy Sleuth. And please remember to join us on Twitter at The Cozy Sleuth or become one of our wonderful patrons on patron.com. Notes on where to find the show's links on patron.com and ko will be in the show's notes. <laughs>